Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry coming to you today on 11-7-19. I do my um, day before the month, so that means it's the 11th of July, 2019. Uh, today we're going to embark on a discussion of two proteins that are potentially involved in both neurogenesis and tumorigenesis in the central nervous system in mammals. So I titled this talk, How Two Potent Anti-Apatotic Proteins Potentiate Both CNS Neurogenesis and Tumorigenesis as Dependent on Developmental and Temporal Lipid Signaling. This is Dr. Daniel J. Guerra. This is Authentic Biochemistry. So from a paper published in Cell Death and Differentiation in 2019, very recently, uh, volume 26, page 1501 ongoing by Fogarty et al., the following was reported. Both neural stem cells and progenitor cells, which they collectively call neural precursor cells or NPCs, generate respectively differentiated neurons and macroglia. And so we've, been, we've known that, of course, just from regular developmental physiology, developmental biology. So they go on to report in their introduction that the murine NPC pool expands from embryonic day 9-10, of course we call it E9-E10, and neurogenesis begins at about E11, when the NPCs exit the cell cycle, so they quit mitosis, and they initiate then terminal differentiation. With programmed cell death, that is that particular form known as apoptosis, controlling total number of cells in the central nervous system of the mouse. So, now we enter two of our players, the B-cell lymphoma 2, BCL2 pro-apatotic plus anti-apatotic proteins officiate that program. In particular, it is two anti-apatotic members, the myeloid cell leukemia 1, which is known as MCL1, and the BCL2-related gene long isoform known as BCL-XL, and then various conformers associated with that anti-apatotic member of that family of BCL2 apoptosis controlling proteins, okay? Both of those appear to be indispensable for mammalian nervous system development and actually for functioning hierarchically throughout neurodevelopment. So we want to know what are the details and how is that program potentially hijacked during tumorigenesis, and that's really the focus of this paper. The hijacking is second half, the first half is just directly leading from this paper. So <laughs> what we find out Im immediately is that MCL1 is upregulated. It, it is upregulated myeloid cell differentiation with MCL1 apparently necessary for survival of precursor populations within the hemopoietic, hepatocytic, and dermal cell lineages. So it is upregulated and it's found in all of those lineages. In fact, a conditional knockout of MCL1, they call MKO, results in extensive apoptosis of NPCs in developing forebrain. And MCL1 is the only known anti-apatotic protein necessary, that is necessary, for the survival of both embryonic and adult NPCs. Okay, remember those are precursor cells, okay? Now, knockdown 
of MCL1 in post-mitotic neurons, that's when they start to differentiate, <coughs> does not result in apoptosis, rather autophagy, allowing the conjecture that MCL1's anti-apoptotic role is somehow temporally defined during neurogenesis. That's what it appears anyways, right? Because autophagy is, again, a unique uh, cell fate from apoptosis. Apoptosis is programmed cell death. Autophagy does not result in cell death. It basically uh, involves reorganization of the cell around catabolic pathways. So utilization of existing carbon sources to reform, regroup cellular metabolism, and then move on from there to say a differentiated state or even indeed into a cell cycle. That's what autophagy is often induced by cell starvation or limiting of some important nutrient. I've talked about autophagy in previous uh, lectures. Now here's the second player, BCLX. The anti-apoptotic BCLX long, that's BCLXL, isoform of the protein is the predominant isoform in the CNS where its expression tracks neurogenesis right at E11. And then in post-mitotic neurons, up to about E13.5. Remember, everything happens a lot faster in the mouse than in the human. Now, a knockout of BCLX is embryonic lethal at E13, which makes sense <laughs> because it's evidenced by apoptosis of both immature neurons and, in fact, all the hematopoietic cells. A conditional knockout study further demonstrated that BCLX is necessary to catecholaminergic, upper layer cortical, and both and through CA1 to CA3 hippocampal cells. Interestingly, a knockout of BCLX of immature retinal ganglion neurons results in apoptosis, whereas adult neurons do not proceed through the PCD, presumably perhaps either autophagy or a neutral fate. But just like MCL1, the anti-apoptotic role of BCLXL in neurogenesis is temporal. So that's what we that's obvious from the data we already have accumulated. So I'm looking at now a figure from the paper, and it's a conditional deletion of both the MCL and the BCLX. So it's a double conditional knockout, they call it a DKO. And indeed, it does result in complete loss of the central nervous system by E14. And they're showing us photomicrographs of representative cresyl violet stain sagittal sections right at E14. They've got control. Um, the MKO, it's a knockout, that's the MCL. The BKO, the knockout, just the BCLX and then the double knockouts. And you can definitely see a progression of neural loss, okay? So the DKO embryo reveals complete loss of the entire central nervous system. There's no doubt about it from this figure. In fact, the thickness of the developing cortical plate appeared similar in control in BKO embryos, but appeared much thinner in the MKO, again suggesting that MKO is involved in the earlier stages of neurogenesis and differentiation. So it's consistent with the extensive apoptosis though, that occurs in the forebrain exactly at that time. In contrast, only a remnant of tissue was observed around the periphery of the brain cavity in the double knockouts. The double knockout is definitely embryolethal. Comparison of the sagittal spinal cord at the level of the heart revealed that both MKO and BKO spinal cords appeared thinner than the control. And again, that's uh, borne out in the data and you can see it in these micrographs very clearly. So, there's a lot of other data in this paper, but I want to jump into the conclusions because I want to move on to how we link up with um, tumor genesis for these proteins. So the conclusions for this paper were, again, just published. 
MCL1 and BCL-XL are essential for cell survival during developmental neurogenesis. That's clear because you don't get apoptosis because they're anti-apoptotic, where apoptosis is controlling neurogenesis, right? Controlling that physiological differentiation. BCL-XL's anti-apoptotic role then can partially compensate for MCL1 in the differentiating NPCs. So I didn't show you that data, but their data definitely showed there was an overlap, a Venn diagram overlap between the two proteins control over that differentiating uh, cell uh, lineage. Now, Bax is a common pro-apoptotic target for both MCL1 and BCLXL. Again, their data showed that, that that protein that normally officiates the mitochondrially associated programmed cell death, apoptosis, that protein becomes a target for both the MCL1 and BCLXL. These proteins, the MCL and the BCL, probably are binding to their targets and maybe carrying out endoproteolytic degradation, or at least they are sequestering the protein and keeping it out of metabolic and therefore physiological play. So overall, this study I just told you demonstrates that MCL1 and BCLXL, those two isoforms, are the crucial anti-apotonic BCL members required for nervous system development, at least in the murine model. <laughs> so again, to summarize, based on the data from the paper, Pierce's temporal requirements of the MCL and BCL during neurogenesis, the anti-apotonic protein dependency from MCL to BCL is developmentally transitional. And the double conditional knockout model suggested survival of CNS is absolutely dependent on the combined expression of both of those proteins during neurogenesis. All right, so now we're going to take a look at those, one of those same proteins within a different backdrop altogether. We're going to be looking at ceramide synthase, the enzyme that is responsible for the synthesis of sphingolipid ceramide. Ceramide is a lipid which is actually a pro-apoptotic lipid signaling molecule. So ceramide synthase, the enzyme responsible for one of the pathways for ceramide synthesis, and the BCL2L13, now that is another isoform of that long form we just talked about. And there's an association, an unforgiving association of those two proteins that leads to drug therapy resistant tumorigenesis via a mitochondrial anti-apoptotic mechanism. This is all coming from a paper, a dissection of a paper by Jensen uh, in the PNAS. This was published way back in April 15th of 2014 as volume 111, pages 5682 and ongoing. Now, I'm, I reach back to that paper because I'm going to weave it together with the one we just looked at published just this uh, last month. Now, we're going to talk about lipids, my favorite subject, of course, because I'm a lipid biochemist. Ceramide is essential for mitochondrial apoptosis progression, so the lipid ceramide. De novo synthesis of ceramides is catalyzed by ceramide synthases. There are actually six of those, and they generate unique ceramide fatty acid molecular species because that ceramide synthesis involves an uh, amide linkage to a fatty acid, preformed fatty acid. And so those different ceramide synthases, those enzymes, will add a different chain length and different level of unsaturation of fatty acid to that amide linkage, the amino group coming from the serine, which is a component of the uh, sphingosine base. So apoptosis induces ceramide synthase on mitochondrial and mitochondrial associated membranes, those are called MAMs, 
And that's actually a compartment linking the ER to the mitochondria. Ceramide production is necessary, now listen to this, for the BCL2-associated X-protein BACs, remember BACs is pro-apoptotic, to insert in the mitochondrial membrane, oligomerize, the protein that BACs oligomerizes, and forms a pore of the outer membrane, causing mitochondrial outer membrane permeabilization. So that's M-O-M-P, MOMP, mitochondrial outer membrane permeabilization, which is the last stage before cytochrome C release, and then the final induction of programmed cell death via the apoptotic pathway, mitochondrial canonical apoptotic pathway. So ceramide synthase 2, that isoform of the enzyme, is a pro-apoptotic, thus enhancing chemotherapy, and in fact, it tanks tumor growth. So this has been known for a long time. In fact, low expression of ceramide synthase 2 is a negative indicator in breast cancer, leading cause of death in women. Ceramide synthase 6, different isoform, promotes therapy-induced apoptosis in colon cancer, head and neck squamous cell carcinoma, and indeed in even lung cancers, which again are all leading causes of death. So how do we make ceramide? Well, it starts off with palmitoyl coa uh, that is a saturated 16-carbon fatty acid with no double bonds, saturated, as I said, attached to coenzyme A as a thioester. It reacts with serine. Uh, to form 3-ketoshvinganine. Then there is a KSA reductase using NADPH, making the shvinganine base, basically turn that keto function to hydroxyl. Um, then there is ceramide synthase. Ceramide synthase takes an acyl-CoA, a fatty acyl-CoA, and makes that amide linkage to that amino group left over from the serine after the condensation to palmitate. Then a really interesting enzyme occurs. Uh, this is basically dihydroceramide desaturase. That desaturase enzyme actually puts a trans double bond in the final lipid uh, ap proapototic um, compound known as ceramide. So it's a trans fatty acid. Ceramide has a trans fatty acid. What used to be palmitate is now a palmitoleic acid because it has a double bond, but it's a trans. This is a natural trans fatty acid synthesis in basically all mammalian cells, wherever shingolipids are made. And it's basically literally all uh, cells that, that are component of at least the nervous system in, in mammals. Now, you can also make ceramide from other pathways, but this is the novo pathway. So just to continue, though, ceramide can be degraded by ceraminidase, where basically you remove that fatty acid. You may come back with the shingosine base. It's now at the hydroxyl level, but it's got the double bond, so now it's called shingosine. And then that could be phosphorylated, shvingosine 1-phosphate, and that can go on to do other um, cellular controlling events. It acts as a signaling molecule, basically opposite of how ceramide works. And that's a whole other topic I've brought up in many other Varev Med lectures, which I'm also the controller of uh, and founder of, and as well as all my authentic biochemistry lectures that talked about lipids. All right. So anyway, shvingosine 1-phosphate, however, can be degraded via the lyase, and that lyase would generate basically hexadecanal uh, ethanolamine phosphate, and that's a full degradation pathway for sphingosine. Then it's completely out of metabolic play. So the conversion of sphingomyelin, which covers, of course, the myelinated sheath around axons in the central nervous system, into ceramide can actually play a membrane structural physical role with consequences for membrane microdomain function, membrane vesiculation, fusion, fission, vesicular trafficking even. 
All those processes will contribute directly to cellular signaling via various pathways and um, metabolic and molecular states. At the Golgi, okay, serum takes part in a metabolic flux towards sphingomyelin, so it's a precursor. It also is involved in diacylglycerol and glycosphingolipid metabolism, all of which drives lipid raft formation and vesicular transport towards the plasma membrane, bacterial movement, bacterial movement from the Golgi to the plasma membrane, carrying lipids and indeed proteins. So see how important ceramide is. At the cell surface, receptor clustering lipid rafts and the formation of endosomes can further be facilitated by a transient ceramide formation. Also signaling towards mitochondria, that's back signaling, may involve glycosphingolipid containing vesicles coming back from the plasma membrane. So ceramide may affect the permeability of the out mitochondrial outer membrane as we talked. And of course, the release of cytochrome C, and we discussed this through the Bax protein mediation. And then the effector phase of apoptosis, the breakdown of plasma membrane, sphingomyelin to ceramide is a consequence of what they call lipid scrambling via scrambolase and may regulate apoptotic body formation as well in the final stages of apoptosis. Thus, ceramide formation serves many different functions at distinct locations in the cell. Really important uh, signaling lipid. So just to remind you, ceramide then is synthesized via the de novo pathway I've already covered. It can also be made by sphingomyelinase, which is a breakdown of, say, plasma membrane sphingomyelin to ceramide. And there's also a salvage pathway. That salvage pathway involves sphingosine 1-phosphate, not all the way down to the ethanolamine 1-phosphate, the palmitylaldehyde, but just from sphingosine 1-phosphate, there's a kinase, uh, there's, a li there's a phosphatase reaction that makes sphingosine, and sphingosine can be directly used via ceramide synthase, another ceramide synthase, forming ceramide directly from sphingosine. So there's two different pathways, one salvage pathway, one's de novo pathway, and the third, of course, is sphingomyelin degradation via the sphingomyelinase, and that's also a two-way street, too, because you can take ceramide and rebuild sphingomyelin, of course, and that's called a sphingomyelin pathway for myelinogenesis. So the paper we're talking about, this PNAS paper from 2014, demonstrated that BCL2L13, now that, again, is a long X form of the BCL, so it's going to be anti-apoptotic. Remember the valence of these proteins. This is anti-apoptotic. As it turns out, that protein was shown in this paper to be a ceramide synthase inhibitor. And in fact, it was elevated in glioblastoma, megaforma, or GBM, and other solid and systemic bloodborne and metastatic human cancers. Okay, now here's where we enter into the oncogenic state. Here's where these proteins are not uh, useful for neurogenesis, but in fact are involved in tumorogenesis, again, in mammals. Um, it, over 50,000 Americans get diagnosed with leukemia and about 80,000 diagnosed with lymphoma just about every year. And if you calculate that out, it could claim, it probably, these two diseases alone, lymphoma and leukemia, probably claim life about every 10 minutes for people that, of course, have the disease. Now, the mechanism of this BCL2L13 is it possesses a unique C-terminal 250 amino acid sequence termed the BHNO domain. And it's between its BH2 and its membrane anchor, called MA, of course. And so the two, those are two domains. Those are structural domains of the protein, right? So it doesn't heterodimerize with pro or even anti-apoptotic BCL2 proteins 
or group with other known BCL2 proteins. That's because it's linking up with the ceramide synthase because of this unusual BHNO domain, which also otherwise controls its own dimerization. So let's talk quickly about leukemias and lymphomas. Leukemia is a bone marrow disease. So bone marrow produces too many white blood cells that do not apoptose, which naturally they should during um, the legislation and the education of uh, uh, white blood cells. So they keep dividing and ultimately they can, uh, they're, they're, they get real high levels in, in circulation. Lymphoma is different. Lymphoma is proliferation in the lymph gland of specifically T and B cells. So lymphocytes, not leukocytes, although lymphocytes are a, are a subclass of uh, leukocytes, but these are lymphocytes. But the same consequence, lymphoma means an exaggerated proliferation of lymphocytes. But unlike leukemia, lymphoma specifically affects the lymph nodes, as I said, and the types are based on the origin of the cancer cell. So these cancers are all also called non-Hodgkin lymphomas. They occur when T or B cells within the white blood cell lineage become abnormal. Hodgkin's disease originates with an enlarged lymph node and spreads to other lymph nodes and eventually to other organs like the lungs. So it's really a heinous disease. Hodgkin's disease is not as common as non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Okay, so it give you a little like oh dictionary thumbprint heuristic of leukemias and lymphomas. You know what we're talking about. Glioblastoma, of course, is a brain cancer in glial cells. Um, there are about seventy thousand new cases of primary brain tumors uh, diagnosed every year. And that includes both the malignant, which is about not quite half of those, and the non-malignant. Brain tumors are the second leading cause of cancer-related deaths in children, both male and female, under the age of 20, with leukemia actually being the first cause of cancer-related death in children. Second leading cause of cancer-related deaths in males aged 20 to 39, where leukemia is first, okay, so glioblastoma second. And it's the fifth leading cause of cancer-related deaths in females aged 20 to 39. So there's a, a gender differential there. There's far more males at the young age and get glioblastoma than females, probably on the order of uh, three to one. So we don't know why that is either, but that's the case. All right. So some data from this paper showed that BCL2L13 is the anti-apertotic protein. It's overexpressed in multiple malignancies, including glioblastoma, as well as anaplastic large cell lymphoma and acute myelocytic leukemia. So though all three of those uh, cancers, you see a big uptick in BCL2L13 expressions, overexpressed. I'm looking here at log uh, um, data of how, how much of this protein is produced uh, scanning Western blots. So it's elevated in all those cancers. In fact, it's greater than two logs more, particularly in glioblastoma. You get that much more increase in this particular anti-apatotic protein. I'm looking at Western blots, and clearly I can see in all the disease states, you get a much higher level of that BCL2L13 protein and using it as a control beta actin. We're also looking at brain tissue slices and the same thing. You get a much more higher density of this protein when they stain for it. And, the, and these, these particular slides are showing me glioblastoma. But as I said, you also get an ALCL, which is a lymphoma, and AML, which is, of course, a leukemia. Also, BC 12, BCL2L13 potently inhibits therapy-induced apoptosis 
And in fact, it indeed promotes glioblastoma progression in vivo. So when you do a knock down of this BCL2L13 using a short hairpin RNA, as assessed by Western blot analysis of endogenous protein, that what you get is the knockdown br brings caspases, which are a component of apoptosis, back up. Basically, they increase in apoptosis. There's a quantitative increase in apoptosis after knockdown of that protein using a short hairpin RNA. Overexpression leads to loss of the caspase, so they can bring back the, in other words, they can give you the negative results and show you that apoptosis is tanked when you increase BCL12, BCL2L13, which is again an anti-apoptotic BCL molecular species. They also found this with xenografted glioma that become ablated by knockdown and are promoted by overexpression of that protein. I'm looking at the data. A lot of these are Western blot showing you protein, but also showing you the short hairpin how it knocks down the activity of the protein, you remove the short hairpin RNA and it comes back up. And we're looking at um, death in days uh, uh, when this protein is expressed. A whole lot more people die, a lot uh, animals die a lot earlier when this um, protein is uh, knocked down for expression. He had a short hairpin control, of course, had no effect on the system, so well controlled. Finally, one more bit of data, BCL2L13 is a mitochondrial protein and they showed here that it inhibits Bax activation and the subsequent MOMP. Remember, that's the mitochondrial outer membrane permeabilization, and which is, of course, precursor directly, uh, proximal to cytochrome C release. And they show that Bax doesn't dimerize when the BCL2L13 uh, is overexpressed and cytochrome C isn't released. So there's no apoptosis linked to the canonical pathway when you get an increase in that BCL2L13 protein, remember the anti-apathetic protein. And they've seen this throughout, and I'm looking at all the data, both graphically and looking at tissue slices and looking at Western blots. It all confirms the results I just told you. So how's it work? As I said, it looks like BCL2L13 binds to ceramide synthase 2 and ceramide synthase 6. It did this with Western blots for those proteins, using them as bait. And of course, when, the, when that protein, the BCL2L13, uh, binds to be both those ceramide synthases, what it does is negatively regulate activity. And they showed that too. When you get an increase in the amount of the BCL2L13 protein, ceramide synthase activity, both ceramide synthase 2, specific antibody to that, specific antibody to the ice form, ceramide synthase 6, all of those proteins drop out in the Western blots. And indeed, um, their activity goes to practically uh, nothing. And if you use the short hairpin knockdown of the BCL2L13 uh, uh, protein, you get a decrease in its messenger RNA, which is what you would expect. So that BCL2L13 short hairpin RNA indeed inhibits the amount of messenger RNA for that protein, inhibits the amount of that protein, and it increases again apoptosis, ceramide synthase activities. So all of it can be completely reversed. All this comes from that Jensen paper, PNAS, way back in 20. So I just want to mention, too, real quickly about the degradation of sphingolipids. This is really important. Sphingomyelin can be broken down to ceramide, and, of course, ceramide is a precursor to all of the um, gangliosides, cerebrosides, and sulfatides. That's really important. Now, I want to give you an error in the NCBI database. It says in the database that 
the BCL1213. This gene encodes a mitochondrially localized protein with conserved B-cell lymphoma to homology motifs. Overexpression of the encoded protein results in apoptosis. We just showed you that was wrong. There's also an error in the European database in Uniprot using as their sole reference a paper published in JBC back in 2001. There's also a Wikipedia error. So throughout the data you see, uh, on all of these websites, these data websites, we're supposed to get good uh, information about these genes. None of them are accurate. So I'm going to leave you with that just to show you that there is error out there in the databases. And we're going to end this authentic biochemistry by saying um, bye for now. This is Dr. Dan Guerra.